lead pastor here, and uh, want to uh, say thanks to um, Tom and Marcy for their uh, their update on the backpacks. That was really cool to hear uh, about and to be a part, at least for me, the first time. And in addition to that, I just wanted to give you another update. Earlier in August, we took up an offering, um, our monthly care and compassion offering. In this instance, we uh, we dedicated that offering to helping and partnering with a church that we knew who had been doing good work in response to some of the fires that we've seen here in Northern California this summer. So we raised almost $400, and we're going to be sending that off this week to, again, a church in Reading that we have a relationship with. They um, served as uh, basically a triage and care center for people in the immediate aftermath of the fire. And so in some small way, this is our opportunity to say thank you to them, to be a blessing to them, and to acknowledge the kingdom work uh, that they are doing. So just wanted to give you guys a couple of updates about those things and say well done. And also, my hope is that we grow in our ability to do that sort of work. And not just uh, one-off things, but really that we are able to find some ways to have deep and long-term partnerships with people and organizations that are doing great work locally here in Davis and Yolo County in Northern California. So to me, this is an encouraging sign that we are headed in the right direction. And I would just challenge you guys to be thinking and praying about some of those things, what those opportunities might look like for us and for our community moving forward. All right, if you have a Bible, open to Psalm 127. We are uh, nearing the end of our Pilgrims series where we've been looking uh, at uh, the Psalms of Ascent. And today our text is Psalm 127. If you need a Bible, please raise your hand. One of our ushers uh, would love to come around. Make sure you have a physical copy of the Bible. And I know that we say this often, but just want to keep reiterating it. Uh, We hope that you... Um, if you need your own copy of the Bible, that you would feel free to just take that with you. These are for you. We want everyone here to have a physical copy uh, of Scripture with them. So if you need that, go ahead and take that with you this morning. All right, as you're finding Psalm 127, let's just pause here and pray before we jump in uh, to our conversation. So pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for... This summer, what you've been doing here at Discovery for these opportunities that we've had to, in some small way, partner with the work that you are doing to restore and redeem your world. God, give us um, the courage and the guidance as we grow in that, as we grow in our generosity as a community. Help us to find good people and organizations to partner with so that we can continue to have an impact for your kingdom here in Davis and beyond. Now, Father, as we turn our attention to Scripture, would you speak to us? Would you challenge us this morning as we look at a couple of areas of life that can be so consuming? Would we we be able to take some steps today in uh, our understanding, our growth towards being discipled by your ways of life in these parts of our lives? We pray this in Jesus' strong name. Amen. So again, we've been looking at the Psalms of Ascent. These are a a smaller subsection within the book of Psalms. It runs from Psalm 120 to 134. These were songs that Hebrew pilgrims, this is where we get the title for our series, they sang these together as they made their way to Jerusalem for one of the major festivals 
of the year, as they ascended up that hill into Jerusalem, they would be singing these psalms. And we've been looking at them, and we've been making the case that these psalms are actually a good guide for us as disciples of Jesus for a couple of reasons. Just to review, they reinforce the truth for us that discipleship is a journey It is a movement towards something. It's not about arriving at a higher spiritual plane. It's about the direction of our life. Discipleship is an intentional process. It's not something that we sort of drift our way into, but we need to be thoughtful and intentional in this. And then finally, it's communal. Discipleship in the way of Jesus, not something we can do by ourselves. We are formed and shaped in community, And because of the communal nature of these psalms, we've been reading them together out loud, and I want us to continue doing that this morning. So if you have the ESV translation in front of you, you can read from that, or if you want to read along with me on the screen. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. All right, Psalm 127. Now remember, we've been working from a very broad definition of the word discipleship, thinking of it as formation into a way of life. And when we think about it at that level, we realize that there are so many ways of life that we can be discipled into. So many things competing for our attention, uh, shaping us and forming us. And so as we come to Psalm 127 this morning, whether we have a a traditional job or not, whether we are Uh, have some sort of strong connection to our family or not. Work and family are two things that capture our attention, that we give a lot of our time and energy to, and therefore two very fundamental areas of life where we must work out what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Now, at the time that this psalm was written, work and family represented survival. Without them, life became exponentially more difficult. So this quest to have and to grow and sustain a family, to toil at productive labor, these were not sort of optional things. We may think of them as optional things in our day and age. At this time, they were not. They were essential to staying alive. And while they may not be critical for our survival today in the 21st century, they continue to be in almost everyone's top five list of idols. Consider family. Whether you are single and pursuing a family or if you are married and have kids with all of the responsibility that goes along with that, if you are simply trying to bring honor to a family name, preserve some sort of family tradition, however you may come come at it, for many of us there is an idea connected to family that is very powerful and that has a deep impact on our lives. And then work. You may hate your job. You may think that what you do is is unimportant or not very valuable. Or you may spend 80 hours a week at work trying to please your boss, trying to move up the ladder. 
Maybe you are out of work. Maybe you are concerned about how you're going to make ends meet. However you come at it, work controls your life and your well-being and your thoughts. Work and family very quickly become the center of gravity in our lives. And so if discipleship is about being formed into his ways of life, if it is about our whole life being formed into his ways of life, it should be no surprise then that work and family are part of this conversation and that they would show up in these psalms. Now, Psalm 127 is interesting. It's credited to Solomon, and it's the only psalm of ascent that has his name on it. Solomon was the third king of Israel. He was the son of King David. David is this massive character in the Old Testament story. And Solomon is probably most popularly known for his wisdom. And a lot of his wisdom is recorded in the wisdom books of Scripture, Proverbs, Song of Songs, and Ecclesiastes. He's not as well known for writing psalms, but here we have one with his name on it. Solomon knew a lot about work and family. He grew up, again, son of David, in David's massively dysfunctional family. He had several hundred wives and many children of his own. If you think your family has some issues, go and read about Solomon's family and be encouraged. <laughs> He's also hugely successful in his work. Again, authored these books, considered to be one of the wisest people who ever lived, built the temple, the most important architectural endeavor in Israel's history as a kingdom, expanded the kingdom, ushered in an era of peace and prosperity, and he gained many endorsements on his LinkedIn profile. Like this one. Take a look at this. When the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. She came to Jerusalem with a very great retinue, with camels bearing spices and very much gold and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she told him all that was on her mind, and Solomon answered all her questions. There was nothing hidden from the king that he could not explain to her. When the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food of his table, the seating of his officials, the attendance of his servants, their clothing, his cupbearers, his burnt offerings that he offered at the house of the Lord, there was no more breath in her. She said to the king, the report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and of your wisdom, but I did not believe the reports until I came and my own eyes had seen it, and behold, the half was not told me. Your wisdom and prosperity surpass the report that I heard. Happy are your men. Happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel because the Lord loved Israel forever. He has made you king that you may execute justice and righteousness. Not a bad letter of recommendation, right? If only that's what our end of year reviews sounded like. Now, given all of that, all that Solomon had done and accomplished, let's look again at what he says in Psalm 127 about work. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. 
Unless the Lord watches over city, over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Now, two key words there, unless and vain. Now, Solomon, as we said, wrote these wisdom books, one of which is Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes contains a very long meditation on the word vanity. And of course, to be vain in one sense is to think too highly of oneself, to put too much stock in one's abilities and accomplishments. But there's also, to the reality connected to vanity, it speaks to futility, to the reality that work can be empty and pointless. Look at Solomon's own words. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who came after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. What is a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Anybody relate to that? Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. Sort of the mirror of those first two verses in Psalm 127. Right? That's a great verse, by the way, to write on a three-by-five card and just put on your desk at work. Look, look to it for some encouragement in the middle of your day. Now remember it. This is the same guy whose accomplishments took the breath away from the queen of Sheba. This is why that word unless is so important. God, or Solomon, who built God's house, who watched over the city of Jerusalem, understood this. One of the smartest, most powerful people to ever live says it's all in vain. Unless. Unless the Lord builds the house. Unless the Lord watches over the city. Now, what if this formed, shaped our approach to our work, to the meetings we have lined up this week, to our educational pursuits, to our parenting efforts, unless, unless, unless the Lord. Now, I want to pause here for just a minute, and I want to, I want to talk us through a couple of theologies of work that I think a lot of us have picked up on, fallen into over the course of our life. I want to call them two poor theologies of work. They're born out of the tension that we have with the vanity of work. And we are going to have to do away with these theologies if we are going to be discipled by Jesus in this area of our life. Now, nothing in pop culture has quite captured our modern ambivalence with the vexation of work quite like the office, right? So watch this clip with me here for a second. Hmm. Yawn. Four seconds. What are you doing? Oh, you had said that you don't do anything personal during work time, so I'm just making sure. Oh, wait a minute. So you're going to time me every time I yawn? That's absurd. Really? Oh, hey, look. Monkey knows how to use a stopwatch, everybody. He's ta... 
Personal conversation. 17 seconds. There is no way that that was... One second. Hey, Andy. Ew. By any chance, did you see Battlestar Galactica last night? No, I did not. Is that any good? Actually not. It is really so-so. Okay. I mean, I like all the crazy monsters and stuff. You know, like Klingons and Wookiees and all that, but... Sorry, was there something you wanted to add, Dwight? Is that anything like the original Battlestar Galactica? You know what's weird? It's practically a shot-for-shot -shot remake. Really? Huh, that's cool. Story's kind of bland. It's about this guy named Dumbledore Calrissian oh, who needs okay. to return the ring back to Mordor. Really? That doesn't sound right. <laughs> it's so good. All right, so two theologies of work. One of them is represented by the story of Babel in Genesis chapter 11. Right? If you know this story, this is the story where human beings try to build a tower that would get them all the way to heaven. And the key line in that story is they build this tower to make a name for themselves. Some translations might say to make our name great. Their work in this story is about establishing and affirming their identity. Their efforts are all about and born out of a mistrust of who God is that he would actually be able to take care of them and provide for them. And that tower that they build, in so many ways, the physical epitome of the anxious toil described in Psalm 127. To the office, this approach to work, that we have to define ourselves by what we do, look to our work to provide meaning for our existence, best personified by the character Dwight. If you've watched the show, if you're familiar with The Office at all, you know that Dwight is a goofball, sort of a buffoon character. He's the one who is so upset about the description of Battlestar Galactica. He is the, the definition of anxious toil, constantly worried, concerned about his position on the flowchart in the office, how to keep rising up the corporate ladder. He's all about the rules, following and enforcing the rules of the office to please his boss, the world's best boss, Michael Scott. Now, here in Davis, in a place like Davis, we, we like to think of ourselves as being more sophisticated than someone like Dwight. And yet many of us have a Dwight theology of work. Work hard, which is to say a lot. Build up the resume, please the boss, gain accolades, and you'll feel good about yourself. It is this mindset that Solomon challenges head on. All that hard work, all those extra hours, all that resume building, it is all in vain. Unless, unless the Lord is at the center of it. Now, some of us respond to this by swinging the other way in a direction that says, God's got it, God is in charge of everything, so why would I need to work hard? Why care much about the work that I do? 
We see this theology at play in the church at Thessalonica. What I want to do first is look at some, some background here. This is from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We read this. You remember, brothers, our labor and our toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk, and this phrase is so important, in a manner worthy. Walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Now, the background here is that this is a letter written by a guy named Paul. Paul was one of the early church leaders. He had spent some time with the Thessalonians, and he wants them to remember his example, not just what he talked about or what he shared, although that's so important, right, the good news about Jesus. He also wants them to remember and model his work ethic. This background is important because later in the story, we find out this, 2 Thessalonians. Now, we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition you received from us. That tradition that he's referring to there is that work ethic he modeled for them. You yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. So knowing Paul's example of hard work, especially for the sake of the good news about Jesus, you can understand his frustration with this mentality that God's got it so we can just sort of chill. Back to the office. This is Jim. Jim has no higher calling or purpose, does not see the importance of his work, has no interest whatsoever in climbing the corporate ladder, and the most energizing part of his job is messing with Dwight, which he does extremely well. Now, it needs to be said here that some of us are out of work for real and oftentimes very challenging reasons. And I do not think that is the issue that Paul is speaking to here. I think if he were with us today, he'd be much more concerned with, with those of us who are employed but idle, the busybodies that he referred to. In 2 Thessalonians, those of us who are not working in a manner worthy. All right, so two theologies of work that we need to leave behind if we want to be discipled by Jesus here. So now we have to ask the question, what does it look like to build a better theology of work? To begin answering this question, we need to go back to the beginning, all the way back to the book of Genesis. Here we see God's work of creation. 
And it's capped by this statement. On the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. Twice, the text mentions that God works. It's so important that we begin here. We need to just sit with this for a moment. God works. God works. Now, earlier in the creation account, just a couple verses before this, we read that God blessed them. Them here refers to man and woman, human beings created in God's image. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, family, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the, over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Work. Here, we are invited to partner with God in his work, what we might call creation work, this mandate, this vocation to partner with God, to care for and to steward his good creation. You see, we were always meant to be productive, to make things, to create stuff, to name and organize and cultivate this good world that God has made. We were made to work. And there's something about work that taps us into God's character. Now, work, like everything else, deeply impacted when sin enters into the picture. Part of the fallout of our rebellion against God is that work now is far more difficult. The ground is cursed. Thorns and thistles fight against our efforts. There's struggle and vanity in our work. But notice that work itself is not cursed. Work is still important and good. God still works. Jesus' own words, my father is working until now and I am working. God's work from Genesis 3 on is about redeeming and restoring his creation and so ultimately is our work. Tim Keller says this so well. Whether we are splicing a gene or doing brain surgery or collecting the rubbish or painting a picture, when our work further develops, maintains, or repairs the fabric of the world, we connect our work to God's work. Now, we still have to deal with the second half of this psalm. This bit about kids, verse 3 through 5. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Now, the question that scholars wrestle with here is what exactly is this psalm about? Is it about work or is it about family? And if it's about both, how do these two things connect? Two quick observations about the text. The first is this. Solomon understands that children and family are a grace in that they must be received. We don't get to pick what family we were born into. And even with all of our technological advancements, having kids is still this mysterious, miraculous process, which is to say 
family is a reminder of that unless from the first part of the psalm. This reminder that we are not in control as much as we may desperately want to be. Now, the the beautiful thing here is that this truth points us towards the good news about Jesus. We don't earn any of this. We don't earn our lives. We don't earn our salvation. It's all grace. It's all an unless. More about that in just a second. Another observation about the text, Solomon says children, family is a blessing. This is that same word used in Genesis chapter 1. What does he mean here that that this is a blessing? At the end of the psalm, verse 5, Solomon says, family is a kind of protection. We will not be put to shame by our enemy at the gate. And I think the the healthiest interpretation of this, this part of the psalm is that this is yet another reminder that we were created for relationship. We were created to be a part of a family, to be a part of a community. We were not meant to do life alone. Now, not all of us are married. Not all of us are able to have children. And so I think it's really important that we interpret the second part of this psalm in light of the first. I think there's definitely a literal reading that can be appreciated, but I believe Solomon is using family here as a metaphor for this more robust theology of work for work that connects us to God's redeeming work. I think this metaphor is a reminder that all God-honoring work is ultimately focused on people. This is modeled for us by Jesus. Jesus never married. Jesus never had children. Was he then not blessed? Of course not. Jesus himself speaks directly to this. His mother and his brothers came And standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mom and your brothers are outside looking for you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? Looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. The blessing that Solomon speaks of in Psalm 127 finds its fulfillment here in the community of Jesus' followers living out right relationship with God and with each other, doing his will, building his kingdom. So whatever we do, whether, whether we are the CEO or the janitor, we do good, God-honoring work when we invest our energy and our efforts into people. And into outcomes that benefit and bless people. Our work is not in vain when it produces a heritage of relationships. And again, Tim Keller has some great words here on this idea. We are not to choose jobs and conduct our work to fulfill ourselves and to accrue power. For being called by God to do something is empowering enough. We are to see work as a way of service to God and our neighbor, and so we should both choose and conduct our work in accordance with that purpose, to serve God and to serve our neighbor. 
Now, a phrase that Amy and I picked up on early in our marriage is this phrase, it's a get-to, not a have-to. Everybody say, it's a get-to, not a have-to. Good. Internalize that. Own that one. (laughs) Now, certainly, within the context of family and work, there are have-tos. Someone has to take out the trash and change a diaper and run payroll. But my hope is that this morning, that this song, this creation, this people theology of work, it frees us up in our roles at work and in our families. May we be able to find freedom in the unless. Unless God is at the center of this, it's all in vain. Freedom by a shift in our perspective from have to to get to. Unless Jesus does his work of salvation on our behalf, we're in big trouble. But the good news is that he has done that work for us, and so we get to respond by participating in his redemptive, restorative work. You see, we are not just dropping our kids off at school and changing diapers. We get to raise up the next generation of disciples and leaders. We're not just punching a clock to pay the bills. We get to participate in God's care and stewardship for his creation. We're not just worker bees making widgets and counting beans. We have been strategically placed alongside people who we get to share the good news of Jesus with. So a couple of questions for us as we come in for a close here. Have you turned work or family into an idol? Have these things become ultimate things, the center of gravity in your life? Have you, again, whether it's been conscious or not, have you adopted a Dwight or a Jim theology of work? Do you need to do away with this theology and embrace the creation people theology of work that that Jesus models for us, invites us into? And then can you reimagine your work, your upcoming school year, your parenting, your roommate situation, whatever that might be for you, can you reimagine that into a get-to? into an opportunity to invest in people as a way to partner with God in his redemptive work. Let's pray. Father, this morning we confess that in so many, in so many ways we make family and work idols. We allow them to become ultimate things. So God, we begin this morning with confession, just naming that those are things that oftentimes capture all of our our minds, our energy, our emotions, our hearts. And as good as and as important as those things may be, God, we want you to be at the center. We want to embrace the unless unless you are at the center of our families, unless you are at the center of our work, it is all in vain. 
So God, give us the courage to, to do what we need to do this morning, to begin taking steps towards having you be at the center of that and finding joy in our work, finding joy in our relationships as a result. God, I pray that we would embrace better, healthier, more robust theologies of work and family, trusting even in in difficult and hard situations that you are doing something, something redemptive, something restorative in those places. And God, we are grateful for the opportunity to partner in what you are doing in our world. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.